Let's open to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians chapter 6. And I will read uh, in the ESV version, which may cause some difficulty when we get to talking about the forces of evil. I notice the names are changed, so I apologize in advance. But Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, or maybe in ours tonight, employees, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling or respect, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now we're glad everybody is, uh, many of you able to stay tonight. There's a saying around this part of the country, it says those who stay will be champions. So many of you will be overcomers here, maybe soldiers for the Lord here tonight. Better husbands, better children, better wives, and those who may be able to stand against the present evil darkness that is before us. 
There's amazing truth found in our Bible. There is power in the Word of God tonight to change lives. And I pray that tonight this, this will touch our hearts as we look at this. So first, before you, on the, the one page is the overview of the book. Dave's done a nice job of getting that to you and bringing it out. We're just in sense of reviewing for you, the beginning part of Ephesians 1 through 5 is really our blessings in Christ. That's the one that says overview of the book. Sorry if you all flipped me. And then we move on after the doctrine is brought out. We have the practice or the application to our Christian life that we are getting into and really our responsibility to the Lord. So we've moved from our blessings now into our responsibilities. So if you want to know what you are to do, this is your section to wake up and pay attention. I really think this standing against the flow we'll see is submitting also to the Lord, but standing against the foe was our protection when we have conflict with the evil one. And we will see about the whole armor of God. And finally, uh, Paul is not remiss to speak about his concern for other believers. Very practically, um, amazing. A, a man who wrote all of, of many parts of our Bible. He is concerned about others who are worried about him. That, that's a very, very beautiful touch that we may not get to. But I, I think that's something very special to look at and see. So the rest of the book, we will look at the other outline. It has most of chapter 6 on it. And then you have something that will help you refer uh, visibly uh, to the armor of God there. So concentrating on this section tonight, on the second outline, as Dave has brought up before us, really Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 is going to lay out the principle with which how we are to understand the rest of the book, which is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everything that is done is not done for the betterment of my wife or the husband or the children or the employer, but it's all out of reverence to Christ. So if you have any problems laying down any of your pride tonight, you just ask yourself, am I submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think here that we have mostly a domestic view here, even though you might think you're out on a battlefield. I'm going to suggest to you that Satan will attack in a place where you are most unanxious or the most feel safe. This one who brings the wiles out. So I think when we see the home brought out before us, I think we see where we work. And also, I think when you look at this battlefield, the battlefield could be right here. It could be in your homes with your families. It could be in your fellow brothers and sisters in the assembly where, where the disaster will break out and the schemes of the devil will be worked out. So this is not out there, my friends and brothers and sisters. This is all here. It's very domestic to look at this. And we will see about husbands and wives and wives submitting to their husbands as we heard. We will now look at children obeying or submitting to their parents in the Lord as this was brought out as well. We will see that over and over again, meaning that this is under the authority, the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are responding to a living, living and risen God who has died on the cross of Calvary for our sins. And this is in the Lord that we are to have that as guiding how well we should obey. How much should I obey? We are obeying the living Christ who died and shed his blood on the cross of Calvary for our sins. We will see this in relation to slaves or employees and employers as we would look at that. You will look at it at the battle scene as we talked about where the believer is going to submit to the authority. You say, well, that's kind of a big jump. Where do you get that? If you go back to Joshua chapter 5, what did Joshua do when he was preparing to go out to battle and to go into the land? And he went out and he was making his plans. And who is there? A man carrying a sword. And he says, whose side are you on? Ours or theirs? And he says, I am the captain of the Lord's host. And immediately Joshua fell down at his feet and worshiped. And he says, Lord, what would you have me to do? 
So it's all under the lordship of Christ. Even in battle, we are submitting to the things of a risen Christ, to receive the authority of God uh, that is there. I think this is revolutionary when you look at this section. And in our day and age, this is very easy for us to see where we should consider other people's feelings. And uh, we're way gone on the side of the, you know, the children and all kinds of things. Uh, you know, pediatricians saying you shouldn't discipline your kids this way and that way. So we're all about this. Back then, it was a totally different world. This was a world filled of 60 million slaves. It was a world where wives not only didn't have the right to vote like it did in this country for a long time, but they had no power. They had no legal standing. They had nothing. Children were completely at the whim of their father, whether they lived or died. If it was a disabled child, they would just as soon not feed it because it would be a waste of resources to do so. And they had no thought about that as ever being a problem. Slaves. One description of slaves back in this time was that there were three types of tools. Ones that can talk, ones that could move, and then a shovel that just sat there. Slaves were just a tool. There was no worth to them. So does not this touch our heart to see that God, the very God of heaven, is concerned about those who are downtrodden, those who have no power in this world, those who have no standing in this world. And it's, I think it's just revolutionary to think of how poor this world has a view of our scriptures and the God of the scriptures, and yet he is one who looks after every one of those who are downtrodden and subordinate in every other way of their life. And he will raise them up, and he will show them that they should be treated in a fair and godly way. So as we look into Ephesians chapter 6, then we move into the last section. I'm not going to go through all the outlines, so hopefully we'll go through it quickly as we get to it. But the child of God is now seen as a soldier. And this is different than any other battle that you've seen, right? Normally, um, World War II... The Allies knock down the Germans and everybody quits and goes home. It's not what we have. We are in the army of the Lord. It's clear that the victory has been won at Calvary. It's over. He is victor over sin and death and hell. And yet, until he returns, the evil one has rule over this world. And we are now on enemy ground, although the victory is ours. And God has granted you inheritances and blessings in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is our job that he says, I place you here. You set your colors here. You do not refuse the line. You stand and you will hold that ground in hostile enemy territory. And it's a very unique situation that we look at. This enemy that we face is, is no pushover at all, lest we think he is. If you take this lightly, this chapter would encourage you not to do so. He is a formidable foe, Satan. He is powerful. He is wickedly deceptive. And in and of ourselves and our own righteousness, we have nothing to stand up to that. So the child of God cannot match that strength. I was thinking about it like walking around in shorts and flip-flops and walking into a Gatling gun. That's the analogy that we have. You are not prepared. And so God says to the child of God, they're exhorted to put on the whole armor of God and then and only end. Then can we stand to be fully prepared to hold the ground that God wants us to hold. So just a word of encouragement tonight. You get a little bogged down in the middle, and you see that there's some foe out there that you can't defeat. We are the army of the Lord, and we have won the victory, and he is coming back again. So don't get bogged down. Word of encouragement. But a word of exhortation here. I apply this to myself first. I've not loved my wife the way Christ has loved the church. I have provoked my children. Just ask them to respond when I'm sitting around here. I have failed to respect my employer on a few days. I have been AWOL from my position on the front line in this desperate spiritual fight that we have. 
I have not handled the truth as carefully as I should. The sword. My shield has fallen a few times. And my feet have slipped. And I have been pushed back. But brothers and sisters, the word here is that the Lord has still left us on this hill. It's still ours to defend. And Ephesians 2 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and it is by grace that you will hold that ground for God. It is not of yourself. He provides the armor, the strength, and the protection and so that we are able to stand for him. May this study tonight touch our hearts and our minds and our will to stand for him. So let's open up in chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> Scott, I love the way you've emphasized the fact that we haven't changed subjects here. We've just changed the objects of the, of the conversation. Um, let me begin with a question. Um, <clears throat> normally, we think of the epistles as being addressed to believers. And so when I read, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, I might assume that in the assembly in Ephesus, when a man pulled out the scroll and read the letter from Uncle Paul, that this would just be for the believing children. But aren't these principles that are expressed here really true of all children? I think it would be... Wait, that was supposed to be a question. I I think we would be limiting this too much if we just said, oh, this only applies to saved children. What do you think about that? I I would agree with you. I, I think it says children in the Lord. And some people have interpreted that as just being in the Lord that they're saved. But I think that's in the Lord, meaning that all of these folks who Paul's writing to are writing under the authority of the Lord. So anybody who understands if you live in a family that you're not saved, you are still under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in that family. That's how I would look at it. Anybody else have any other thoughts? So you're saying that in the Lord means more than that they are saved. I don't think it means less than they are saved, though. In other words, I think it is addressing saved children. The principle is obviously for from God for all men, but who's listening, right? So we're talking about children, and this means born ones. It's not limited to very young children, but it could still be children in minority. And yet, as we said, hupotasso doesn't necessarily simply mean obeying in the sense of a minor child to a parent. But there's a sense in which disobedience and certainly the other word honoring continue throughout the whole life of the child until the parent is is gone. I just thought that the analogy from the previous chapter, if men love their wives and wives submit to the husband, marriages are blessed whether you're saved or not saved. So I had thought that when I come here, the principles of children submitting and obeying their parents are going to be true, you know, either way. It's just that the saved children have this as an obligation in a way that maybe the unsaved will not realize. Well, he's, if he's exhorting saved children, uh, which I believe he is, but he then applies it in a much broader way. He says this comes from a very basic principle of the Old Testament. And then he gives the Old Testament uh, foundation for this, the promise for this, which does apply to all children. So even when your children are very young and aren't listening to this, by you helping them to learn how to behave and honor their father and mother, you are doing them a tremendous uh, service because they are. It's going to. It says that your that your your lives may be long upon the earth, right? So it's going to be good for them to honor their father and their mother. I think it's also a good principle 
uh, Mr. Valance used to teach us this when we get the children raising, is that you want to break the will of the child, not their spirit. And I think that that's your train up in the child the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. So I, I would agree. I think you could broaden it out there, but that's good. Yeah, a child in verse uh, 1 that obeys, I think we can uh, readily assume that the individual has willingly submitted to obey. They haven't been beaten to that point. Otherwise, the next commandment about honoring your uh, father and mother uh, wouldn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So for us that are parents and the, well, some of us are halfway done with that. Halfways. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> uh, the consequence of a child learning to willfully obey the parent will be known later when they willingly honor their parents. Um, I don't want to get sentimental, but you know, we, many of you know we buried Nancy's father just recently. Honoring that man was very, very right and easy. Why? Because of the way he raised his family. You know, so the sequences here are, are real. And I, I like the idea, believing children being exhorted. But the because, hey, how many people have you known who have raised their children and the children have behaved this way, but they didn't have a long life? whether through disease or disaster, we've seen some very godly young people leave this world. Yes. So it's the principle that's being brought to our attention here. It's not a promise, necessarily. Is there a legitimate distinction that we can make between submitting in chapter 5 and verse number 21 and here obeying? Sure. So that the principle in chapter 5 is a general attitude of submissiveness, yep. whereas here children have specific obedience that is required. Is that right? Yeah, so the word obey comes in specifically rather than right. just being submissive, which is a bigger concept, but less appropriate um, in other settings than to ch a child and a parent, where straightforward obedience is what's required. So there are three things here that are said about obedience. Number one, it is right. That means that it's a part of the basic structure of an ordered universe. Mm -hmm. um, the young must be instructed by older, wiser parents. Um, you don't even have to look at human beings. Watch a mama cat with her kittens, and you will learn that God has built into the universe that the older, wiser, protect and teach the younger. And so it is right. It is inherently in agreement with how God has structured the universe. Secondly, it's scriptural. And I, I'm going to what Stu has said here. He's quoting, obviously, from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 and also Deuteronomy 6 and elsewhere. But this is a scriptural thing to do. And thirdly, it's in their best interest. Yeah. Now, let's be really clear about this, and Stu has already mentioned this. Obeying your parents does not promise longevity. It does not. But... I think it's more about the quality of the life that's affected. If you learn to obey your parents in the home, when you hear the gospel preached, you will know what it means to obey God, because that's what the gospel is. If you come into a local assembly, you will know what it is to submit and obey to leadership that God has established. You'll have a much easier time on your job, and you'll get along with your wife a whole lot better. And so it isn't how old you live to be chronologically. I think it really is the quality of your life. Now, the quotation from the Old Testament has to do with how long God would leave them in the promised land before he kicked them out. 
And they lasted a few hundred years, but God had to carry out his threat and eject them from the land for disobeying this. But in our setting in the New Testament, in this dispensation, it's not longevity, but I do believe I'm so thankful that God saved my life. In the gospel, we talk a lot about having your soul saved. I want to just tell you, God has saved my life, and I am grateful for it, and obedience is part of that lesson. Colossians 3 and 20 would add to that too, Dan, that it's not only right, but to get back to Mr. Schott's point in submissiveness, it pleases the Lord. So that would be more along the lines of, like Dave was saying, a Christian who's obeying their parent, living at home as a, as a younger person. If we move on to the, the verse from the Old Testament, honoring thy mother and father, what uh, difference does that bring out? What's the difference between obey versus honor? I think honor is a wider concept, and I think it applies to adult children honoring their adult Amen. parents. As I said, right to the point where those parents are gone. And that doesn't mean that the parents, in some sort of uh, mock-up we could make, it can come and dictate the color of the walls in your house and tell you how many children you can have and what jobs you're allowed to have, you know, interfere and meddle with their adult children. Those adult children are not, not compelled to obey them in those sorts of silly things. But they are obligated to honor them as long as they live because mm -hmm. they are their parents. And this hierarchy is not changed by the passage of time. And the responsibility to those parents persists until those parents are taken home. Actually, Dave, can I expand that? Um, I just, some of you maybe heard me speak on this recently at a conference. I believe that honoring your father and your mother extends until you die, not until they die. I am sick to death of people, adult people, who blame all the failures of their life on parents who have passed away. You know, they didn't give me enough Fruit Loops, and they didn't buy me, you know, bell-bottom jeans, and everything is your parents' fault. That, even if your parents are dead, and look, at every parent has failure, but you keep that to yourself. That's not to be shared. That's not to be talked about. That's not to be broadcast. You, you keep that within the confines of the family. I think honoring your father, I, I hope, that until the day I die, I honor my father and my mother. So I believe there are lifelong obligations, even though they have passed away. In Genesis, Genesis and also Matthew, the Lord Jesus taught that when a man marries, he will leave his own home, right? That's what you were indicating, that there would be a new headship set up, as we were talking about. So they would not be dominated by the other, right? And so they come in and establish their own home. But it doesn't take away the respect and the esteem that they could show for their parents. And th this is a challenge that this generation is going to see more than any others. As our generations, exactly. generations are growing into 80 and 90, um, you know, there are people who leave their mothers and fathers in you know, Medicaid homes where there's four in a bedroom like Willy Wonka. You know? So it's like these are things that this generation is going to have to stand up and answer to. That's why we mentioned that specifically. So the promise from the Old Testament is that this is good for society. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's no promise even in the Old Testament that an individual who did this would right. live long. It's talking about, and you've said this already, and Ezekiel 22 bears this out. It says one of the reasons why the Babylonian captivity occurred, among several, is the failure of children to obey their parents. Yes. And so it's explicitly stated that the longevity of the people in the land of Israel was... Uh, predicated, I could say, maybe on obedience of children to parents. And when that doesn't occur, society falls apart. It self-destructs. God often doesn't even have to move in. 
So when we start to look at the, the next section here, as, as we look into the parents here and the role, are we just taught, it's, we don't want to change what scripture says and just speak mostly to the fathers, because we've mentioned in the last that the father has the responsibility at home, just like he has the uh, responsibility to nourish and cherish his wife. He has he is the one who will carry the lead for instruction of the child, and, and it will be based on what what he does and how he thinks and how he sets things up scripturally at home, not to say that the mother is most of the time home. But what, what does this have to do with bringing them up in discipline? What, what do we look here? Can the mother and father both be here? Or are we looking mostly at the, the father? I think it's the fathers primarily. <clears throat> the, the plural word pateras in Greek, which is built on the word for father, can mean parents in the generic sense. But I think the context shows that's not the case because the word for parents has already been used. Right, right, right. And it's also in keeping with the context that the male will be given headship responsibility mm-hmm. here. So it's the males in the family, even though the mother is obviously very involved and sometimes more is delegated in her case than the father himself may do, still ultimately it's his responsibility to see these children are raised. Amen. I think he's addressing things that are against our nature. <clears throat> so fathers provoking children to wrath, I think there's a greater propensity right. uh, for fathers to do that, speaking as a father. Um, and, and then maybe a propensity to neglect instruction and leave that, I'm too busy, I'm you know, the breadwinner mm-hmm. and whatever, and, and neglect that. Really, all these things are really against our natural, uh, against the flesh. The husband and wife, the headship there, you know, we go back to Genesis chapter 3, and the desire of the woman will be towards the man, and he shall rule over you. The natural propensity of fallen nature is for the woman to want his place and not to submit, and the man to oppress the woman. Mm-hmm. And so all these relationships are very unnatural. And, they, and it, it takes grace. It takes the, the, the Spirit of God being filled with the Spirit to, to um, fit into these um, roles. And so it's, it's, he's, I think he's addressing things that are propensities or, or natural propensities is just the opposite. <clears throat> There's a bit of a closed loop here too. Uh, the way a father or a parent disciplines a young child will result in an obedient or disobedient child. Mm-hmm. So the ability for a child to obey your parents in the Lord has a lot to do with how they were raised as a young child, whether their will was broken mm-hmm. and they were their... their, their uh, Wild nature was restrained, as uh, the Proverbs tell us. So, you know, you can look at examples like Eli, who, who never questioned his boys, right? And they turned out to be a disaster. Um, and even David. David was not a very good father. His sons rebelled. Look at Absalom. He didn't really question Absalom. He didn't re- restrict Absalom. He, he kind of was left to go wild. And what he almost lost his he temporarily lost his kingdom over it. So... Uh, how fathers and parents discipline their children as, when they're very young affects their ability to obey and their ability to later then honor their father and their mother. Mm-hmm. Can we give some examples of provoking? So discipline and anger? Anything. So, uh, we to be practical. We know that you know, the worst thing you can do is discipline a child to take out your frustrations. They disobey you and you're angry because you're 
authority has been challenged, and you discipline them in anger. That will frustrate a child. Uh, the recommendation has always been to cool down and discipline out of love for the for their best, not for to uh, satiate your own anger and your frustration. So you would frustrate a child by disciplining disciplining them in anger and and being unreasonable. See the goal here and. Dave touched on this in the last meeting. What is the goal in the marital relationship? Well, it's for the, the husband to love his wife. What did we decide that meant? Does everybody remember from two hours ago? It, it means to seek her fullest blessing, her fullest development. That's the, that's the God-given responsibility of the husband. What is the God-given responsibility of the father? It is to bring him up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What is this child training? It, it is to bring out the full development and potential of that child. So what, what Jeff has said, when I short-circuit my own um, passions and break out in anger, then it's only going to produce something that's short of what God intends that child to be. So I think it's really important that we see here that this is a sacred trust. We're not just housing our children, but we have a sacred trust to bring them up for the Lord. Now, I want to say a couple things about discipline for a minute. Scott asked me if I would do this, and I'm just going to do it in the course of a minute or two. But I want to point out that the discipline of children is a godlike thing. If you want to be godly, you must discipline children. This is what Hebrews 12 says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. To fail to carry out discipline in the home is to be ungodly. I hope you understand this is a serious thing. Secondly, there are many ways to discipline. Not all of them are physical. I'll tell you, we believe in corporal punishment, but under very strict regulation. And there are many, many ways, and we can talk about this, that we can discipline our children and train them. Discipline is in the context of instruction. There's something that ought to be taught by discipline. And this is where, Jeff, I think I'm coming back to your idea again. What is taught in anger? Well, anger begets anger. That's all you teach right. with anger. But loving discipline actually conveys a message. I think the next thing I want to say is, is that there's nothing wrong with discipline being painful. You say, oh dear, now you're, now you're wandering off the reservation. Well, it's interesting that pain is required for ultimate blessing. Uh, listen to Hebrews 12. For the moment, all discipline all discipline seems painful. My will hates to be confronted rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the fact that there's pain involved is not inherently abusive. Now, we do need to be careful, folks, that we do not wander into what can be observed as abuse. We do not discipline out of anger. I, we do not discipline for accidents child knocks over a glass of milk. Uh, I think the discipline should be reserved for rebellion, at least corporal punishment. I think that it should be done in private. Based on our society today, you will not advance the testimony of God by slapping your child in the mall. Everybody understand what I'm saying here? Keep it a private thing. And I think the other thing is that there ought to be limits when at least corporal punishment is carried out. Dave has already indicated that the submissive role of obedience ends when you establish your own home, you become an adult. But I do think that corporal punishment
probably ought to be limited also. Hebrews 12 says, he disciplines us for a little while. And I think that if discipline is carried out diligently when children are young, it will avoid the necessity of doing it when they become teenagers or older. Let me just say this, just one more thing, and then I'll I'll quit. This is what the proverb says, that discipline is necessary to express love. He that spareth the rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him. I mean, you don't have to be an English major to understand what that's saying. If you love them, you must discipline them. It is designed to quench rebellion. Rebellion, foolishness, is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Discipline imparts wisdom. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. And the last one, I'm just going to pick on what everybody else has kind of said here and summarize what I'm saying. Discipline is necessary to obtain future blessing. Listen to what the proverb (coughs) says. Withhold not correction from the child. Because if you do, or if you discipline him, you will deliver his soul from hell. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. So I hope you understand that discipline is absolutely necessary with children. Free-range children who raise themselves are just going to raise demons. And so may God help us all. I know I'm, I nearly wept when Scott was saying what he did about how he felt his own life had been. I just say the same thing in spades because I was not great at raising children, but I tell you, I'm thankful for the guidance of the Word of God. We don't need Dr. Spock. The Bible really gives us instruction. And that's really what how uh, verse 4 finishes. It's the discipline and instruction of the Lord, right? So it's not just correction. It's training. It's instruction. It's exposure to the Scriptures daily. Uh, you know, if you're, a, if you're a father, you're responsible to make sure your children are exposed to the Scriptures. And your mother will, will do it as well. But it's your responsibility, Father, to make sure that really daily those children are exposed to the Scriptures. I like just one brief comment. I like the idea of nurture, which the ESV translates discipline, as the idea of tutorage. So it involves what we've been saying, education, training, discipline. But I think it also involves looking at the child and understanding their particular personality, their particular weaknesses, strengths, and trying to, and we all fail at this, but trying to to bring the training and the discipline that is appropriate for that, that child, given their situation and their personality. This term admonition, um, some would point out, that carries the thought of warning with it. And um, say this carefully. Some of us were saved out of ungodly lifestyles. Now, I'm not going to advise you to bring out all the, you know, unsavory details of your past. But the idea of warning your children from your own experience uh, is something that you should, you shouldn't sit back and say, well, that's what I did, so I guess if they do it, you know, so be it kind of thing. I'm just reaping what I sowed. No, warn them of what the misbehavior of the uh, rebellion of your own life consequences then were. Mm-hmm. Uh, without, let's say, going in all the unsavory details, 
say, hey, you follow this path, this is what you're looking at. Um, don't be afraid to talk about your past in a careful way to make sure they understand that you're not just being an overbearing, restrictive parent. Just to draw this to a conclusion, so we've, we've talked about both the positive and negative aspects, but the, the positive aspects here, it, when you look at this instruction or warning, King James says admonition, really means correction by word of mouth. So that fathers, you can't correct if you're not there. You can't read if you're not there with them. So you need to be there. And if you want to read something and it describes it, it just was like a cold water in the face. You read Deuteronomy 6. It says, when you get up in the morning and when you come home and put it on the doorpost, so every bit of your life is instructing the children um, of, in the things of God. And go home and read Deuteronomy 6 tonight, and it'll be explained that very nicely to you. But we should probably move on to our next section as we look into the slaves or the employees and employer section here. Um, does anybody have any comments that they want to talk about? Is this the same word for obey uh, here? Um, as we look at slaves or employees obeying their earthly masters with fear and trembling, or maybe we would say fear and respect. I think it just shows that Christianity needs to touch every relationship. I do not have permission from God to create compartments in my life. So this is my private life, and this is my work life, and this is my assembly life, and this is my home life. Um, did you think that God can't, three, can't see through walls? <laughs> I mean, everything is naked and open before him. And so the way the scripture views it is that the man that you see at Barnes & Noble when I'm picking up a magazine ought to be the same man that you see sitting up here in front of you at a Bible reading. There needs to be absolute consistency across my life. And here it's reaching into the workplace. And that's a hard deal because the workplace is the one place where you cannot avoid being around unsaved, unreasonable, vulgar, profane, dishonest people. The workplace is full of them and you have to deal with it. And yet Ephesians chapter 6 tells us exactly how we're to behave in that environment. Joe, yeah. I was just going to say that this section, and you mentioned this, Scott, in the opening, really elevates employment work, secular work, to a very high level uh, mm -hmm. and really shows, as Dan's been saying, that whatever we do, even in our employment, can be for the glory of God mm -hmm. and that we shouldn't, I'm going to make a similar point, think of our life as this is my work life and this is my assembly life. Mm -hmm. stole, stole what I was going to, or <laughs> that was the point I was going to make, but the, the uh, if we go back to Genesis, um, there, we see that, that God has put uh, assigned dignity to, to work, okay? But when we come to, to the gospel and Christianity, as Joe's just mentioning, it raises up to a new level because when we're going to work, we're not working for a human boss. We're working for, for Christ, yeah. and we're doing it as unto the Lord. So, so everything we do, even though it might be monotonous, it might be something we don't enjoy, there's always, for the Christian, the ability to say, well, I'm doing it for him. And it really should... Uh, you know, govern the attitude that we have. And then, not only that, there's a reward for it. So, again, the people we rub shoulders with every day, they go to work, it's, it's what they can get out of it, right? It's how high they can get and the reward that that, uh, that the job gives themselves, whether it's the paycheck or rewarding work uh, and the prestige and all that, that's all they have. Whereas for the Christian, 
it's there is a at the end of this section it talks about a reward from the Lord. So again, this Christianity really elevates the, uh, the dignity of work. So this is not a commentary on slavery. No. But uh, Paul picks an extreme example, so it fits everybody. So you can't get any lower than a bond servant, a person that whether willingly because of a debt or because they were uh, enslaved, on, uh, uh, not by their own choice, if even they can have their work elevated uh, before God to be something that can actually be a place where you can serve God, then it applies to employees. There weren't employees in these days. There weren't, there weren't bond slaves or masters. There was a lot in between, but I believe the Holy Spirit chose this uh, position of a bond servant as the bottom, the bottom echelon of, of workers of society. Even they have their work elevated to be, they can be, a, they can be serving Christ in their position. So none of us are in that position, right? And some of us might think, oh, I got a tough job or my boss is you know, not worthy of respect. No, no. The extreme case, it applies to, so it applies to everybody. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Sorry. I was just thinking as you're talking, I can remember sitting at my desk back in industry years ago as a young fella, married but no children, thinking, what in the world am I doing here? You know, I had a good job. What am I doing here? It was in the context of what am I doing with my life in here? And it was this passage of scripture that was either in our Bible reading at the home assembly there in Ontario or somebody's ministry that just changed the whole perspective. I was serving Christ. Now, I'm not dismissing the idea of being commended to the Lord's work or whatever and what all that involves. But I hope our saints here today that are involved in secular employment Understand that you are serving Christ every bit as much as any man that is out on the front field in the gospel work. This is all part of what it means to serve Christ. Notice how it says, as from the heart unto Christ, servant of Christ, doesn't say Lord here. Why? Because that was the mark of his life. This is the Lord Jesus in submission to God in heaven, the one who served, commissioned from heaven, sent, and did everything faithfully. He is the model for your work every day when you come and go. And it changes your whole perspective to get an appreciation of that. There's some descriptors here that we've, we've elevated the job, and that, that's good because it's as under Christ. But when we look at fear and trembling, um, it really means that you should want to go to work and do your job. Not that you're looking to not screw up, but that's what it sort of means. Don't go to work thinking, oh, it's okay if I screw up. You should be wanting to do this so well. There should be just a little touch of anxiety there that says, I, I need to do this well uh, because I'm not doing it for my boss. I'm doing it for the Lord yes. Jesus, right? And then there should be, a, there, it said, with a sincere heart. This, this really challenges me. Am I, am I going to work with a sincere heart, uh, you know, which, which speaks of singleness of mind, purity of mind, I'm not doing this for secondary motive. I'm just going to do the best job out of sincerity. I love that expression, eye service, within sight of the master. I tell you, I do this as quick as I can. A young fellow, he wasn't saved all that long. He had a job where he was out in um, uh, commercial advertising, going from one retail place to another, and his regional manager decided to shadow him one day and then called him in for an interview a few days later. One of the things he said to him, he says, you work like somebody's watching you all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was doing as that unto the Lord. 
And this text actually shows us that our true wages are not what we get in our paycheck. Very interestingly, it says the good that anyone does, this is in, in the sense of working as to the Lord, this you will receive back from the Lord. Isn't that very interesting to me? That's in verse 8, knowing this is King James now, that whatsoever good things a man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. The highest payment for a job well done is the approval of God, not dollars in the paycheck. And I'll tell you, for some of us who worked a long time in business, we have proven, in some small way anyway, that them that honor me, I will honor. Some of us have worked for people that discriminated against us because we were Christians. I remember the very first corporate job I ever had. It was a good job, and I liked it for the first two weeks. And then they discovered that I was a Christian, and nobody would sit with me that supper because of the second shift. One man who professed to be a Christian, sometimes came and sat with me. It wasn't that I was doing a poor job. It wasn't that they didn't like me personally, but for the sake of Christ. And they made this very clear. They wouldn't even sit by me. Well, you know, that um, the point is I wasn't working for them. Mm-hmm. We're working for the Lord. And them that honor me, I will honor. And I was not the loser in that job, I'll tell you. So let's just remember that, that the bigger paycheck comes from God. And he's the one who rewards the good that he's done. <laughs> As we serve him. And this doesn't just mean that if you're a good employee, you're going to be promoted. No. You probably will. But at the judgment seat of Christ, yeah. you're going to be rewarded for being a good nurse, being a good engineer, being a good student. If you're in high school, your job is to be a good student. And you can actually be a good student unto the Lord and receive reward at the judgment seat of Christ for being a good student. So that elevates everything we do, doesn't it? This is a bit of an aside, but... We live in a world where social issues have been elevated to the most important issues. And some people criticize, well, why, why wasn't the Bible stronger against slavery? And there are a lot of reasons for that. Scott mentioned one. There were 60 million slaves, and the gospel, the Lord said, was you know, not about changing this world. His kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, his servants would fight. But... One reason is in these verses, is that from the perspective of eternity, a slave, as painful as that life would be, and I'm not minimizing it, from eternity's perspective, if he did it for the master, he has eternal reward and glory, which is what we've been saying. And so from that perspective, right, uh, he's not deprived of his ability to win the reward for the long eternity. One more comment on that, if you read... Philemon. Uh, Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a brother, not as a servant. So, um, the, the you know, the, the Lord takes a dim view of subjection of people. Right. But uh, the, the reason for the Bible is an eternal perspective, not a societal thing. But um, the, in the under the law, slavery was not allowed. Six years, a man could sell himself to be a bondservant, and the seventh year, he went free. So the uh, the scriptures and the law were very, very protective of human rights, just uh, if anybody ever wants to argue that the Bible promotes slavery. It doesn't. And Scott, if I could just say one more thing about this section. There is the possibility that believers here are employers as opposed to being employees. And this brings some challenges to living in a Christian way. Now let me be very clear about something. The workplace is not the local assembly. There are people to be hired, 
There are people at times that need to be fired. There are things that are associated with business that don't directly correlate to what we do exactly in the Christian life. But I think there are principles here that are very important. Number one, just because I'm the boss doesn't relieve my responsibility to act as a Christian. In fact, it augments it. And I think there's two things here that are mentioned. I'll just touch them briefly. Don't threaten. So in our employee-employer relationship, um, work is not carried out as a result of threats. And sometimes people let a little power go to their head. Martin Luther said every man has a pope in his belly. And, uh, but, but that's not how we're supposed to operate a business. And last of all, there's no partiality. So we treat people equally. And in the business world, we're obligated to do that. Um, we have people who work for us at times who may have alternative lifestyles. They may have tattoos. They may have piercings in places I don't want to imagine. Um, they may personally practice things that are obviously completely contradictory to my own beliefs. But I'm to handle them without partiality. And so I hope the Lord helps us not only to be good employees, but if you're the boss, I hope the Lord helps you to be a good Christian boss as well. Mm -hmm. What does it mean in verse 9? It says, Masters, do the same to them. Anybody has any thoughts on that? I just think it's that you serve with an eye to Christ. I think that's all it means. It just says that if you're a bondservant, serve with an eye to Christ. <coughs> Masters, do the same thing. Be, be a boss with an eye to Christ. I think that's what that means. One of the things I was thinking there too, in addition to what Dan said, is would you as someone who is responsible for other people treat them as you would like yourself to be treated? The, the golden rule, you know, as we speak about in the Bible, do unto others as you wish them to do unto you. So I think there might be a little a touch of that in there as well. And stop your threatening. And we have heard just like not provoking the children. So there are rules for those of us or those of you in the audience who are uh, managers of people or uh, anything else. These are principles that you can find uh, to, to put into place uh, to guide the people that work underneath you. So you mentioned that everyone in this chapter is under submission. And so here we have it again in verse 9 that even the master those that are masters, there's a greater master still, the Lord, and we're accountable to him. It's a neat phrase when it says no partiality there with them or showing no favoritism. The idea is that when people walk into the room, you don't look up into their face to see how you're going to treat them. So in other words, if that's somebody that you think ought to be treated better than you should, so I think that's a general principle that goes all across and would do well for us in our assembly lives too, not to treat anyone with partiality by looking at them and thinking that I should treat them differently. You should be able to treat every person as the Lord would have you treat them without looking up to their face to see who they are. There's no partiality and no favoritism. Maybe then we can move on uh, to the next section of the armor of God. And in this section, again, as we, we suggested that this is a Christian now submitting to the fact that they are engaged in a global yet likely lo local spiritual warfare. 
um, that they didn't really uh, maybe buy into, but everybody here that has been saved by the precious blood of Christ is now in this army. Um, in this army, there's no 90-day enlistments, there's no furlough, um, and there's, there's no uh, honorable discharges. So, you know, all of this that we see before us is going to be service for the entire life in submission um, to the captain of our salvation. So what, uh, what, what does it mean when it says to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might? Have we seen something like that thus far in Ephesians? We certainly met these words in chapter 1, three or four of them. And so the same power that raised up Christ from the dead and set him at the highest place in anticipation of the day when he would take his bride and behead over all things is the same power that is available to us to overcome our daily problems, which is amazing. So I think in chapter 5, we read the days are evil. That means that we live and serve in a general environment. <clears throat> when we come to this section, and I'm, I'm not jumping ahead of Scott here, but in verse 13, it talks about the evil day. So what he's saying is we need to be strong for the general wickedness that's all around us, and you do. But the issue is, is that the moment is going to come when the devil or his, his subordinates are personally going to attack you. And so this is becoming very specific now. What you need to withstand an attack of the wicked one. Since we're doing okay in time, maybe we can refer to that section. And maybe you can look at Ephesians chapter 1 for just a second. Because there is going to be power that you cannot face. But is, we've already been ex exposed to this in Ephesians chapter 1, like Dave mentioned in verse 19. And this power is, is this. That, and the, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power mm -hmm toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in the cross. So the victory is won. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. And this is important because this is key as we look into these powers of darkness that, that can trample all over you. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we can take comfort in this, that there is no power that can stand against God. There is no power that can stand against God. So in your worst day, you know you have the Lord Jesus on your side, and there is no power that can stand against him. And you are to stand in that power. So one way to translate this to bring these the nuances of these different words out would be, be being made capable in the Lord. So the Lord will make you capable. He'll make you able. That's dunamis. He'll make you able to do something. You'll have the competence and the capability to do something. The next phrase used is the strongest of the strong words, the strongest of the words. And in the dominating might of his brute strength, those are the two strongest words, kratos and iskuos in Greek. And so he's talking about being made capable for all the things that are in front of you day by day by the overwhelming, dominating power of the sovereign God. Just overwhelming. It'll overwhelm any problem in your life. This is a really good example of what we were talking about in the first meeting about why the first chapters are important. 
This would actually be a horrifying section if that's if you didn't know about chapter one. Yeah. You read about these powers of darkness in uh, in heavenly places, even like how are we going to stand against that? Well, we this power we learn in chapter one is the power of Christ and His work. So nothing can stand against that. And then He is going to actually supply out of that armor to us so that we can withstand. So it's tremendously encouraging when we read this to know where that power is coming from. The chapter 1 speaks about divine power toward us. We can look in chapter 3 and verse 16 and see this divine power in us. And now here in chapter 6 and verse 10, it's divine power for us. So we shouldn't be naive uh, to the fact that the devil has schemes. Um, if you ever read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, it's, it's, if you haven't, it's worth reading. It's kind of a, an allegory or a, a imaginary uh, novel about evil spirits and the devil and them talking behind the scenes and trying to trip up, first of all, an unbeliever who then gets saved and, and his life as a believer. What goes on behind the scenes? It's actually quite enlightening. But the devil has schemes, and he's very, very intent on causing you to fall, you and I to fall, and not glorify God. He hates when God is glorified. I, I love that book. I read it as a young Christian. One of the things I learned from that book that was very helpful to me is the devil, we, the devil doesn't attack your weak points. He attacks your strong points. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that my weak points, if I'm aware of them, I tend to guard my weak points. But sometimes there's a little hubris. Well, I could never fall in this. This is a place that I would never compromise. And I thought, Jeff, that that was one of the interesting things I took away from that book. It is the schemes of the devil. The devil very rarely attacks you head on. Most of the time, he sneaks in the back door and he sabotages um, what, as I've just said, what you think you're, you know, not where where you're not vulnerable. We should see that this is far as the Christian is concerned, is defensive warfare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We have this word here, stand, right? So we're not going out looking for trouble here. We're, we're, we're to stand against it, to withstand. It's the powers of darkness coming against us, and we're, we're to be on the defensive. There seems to be two realms, really, of, of evil force here. There's that which is on earth, and it seems to be directed by that which is in heaven. So there's, there are evil forces that seem to be assigned to this world, demons, etc., and we're not given much information about the whole program of the devil, but it says, and then there's even powers in heavenly places. So there's, a, there's a, quite a program at, uh, going on on the evil side trying to uh, thwart the glory of God. Of course, we know that he's been conquered, and he will be conquered, and we can stand, and uh, he is able to keep that which he's committed uh, committed unto him against that day. But it's naive not to be aware of it. <clears throat> With the uh, the force of the of the attack, look at the the repetition of of the word against, mm -hmm. so that you may be, may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present uh, darkness against the spiritual forces. So it's very much it, that the repetition of that word, I really I think really conveys the fact that, that 
the devil, the powers of darkness are on the, the attack. It's not a matter of if or someday. It's, they, it's a very forceful thing that the Christian faces. Mm. I was interested by the expression here that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Not weird. I mean, what about Pharaoh? And what about Haman? And what about Judas Iscariot? And what about Herod? Well, I think the point here is, is that all of those men had demons behind them. That, that's really what's being said here. It isn't that there aren't evil men that oppose you. It's that we look through those men to see the spiritual darkness that they represent. Is that a fair way to look at this? I, I think so. I think it's instructive here that there are this, the word stand is used, as, as Joe pointed out here, in a defensive position. And it's used four times, but then there's three tenses of the word here. And the first one comes out that you are placed before the battle. So God knows what he wants out of your life. Wherever you're at, in the position you are in, uh, as an unmarried person right now, someone looking for a spouse, if you're in college, if you're a family, uh, if you're a mother or father, whatever you are in life, God has placed you there to stand and protect whatever truth that he has given you, right? So that's the first stand. The second one is you stand during the battle. You don't give ground. You understand what the word of God says. You prepare yourself in whatever way you can and let the victory rest with the Lord. And then the last one I like the best is that you remain standing. You remain standing. The faithful brother or sister who, who stands where God's placed them and works in his power, you will continue to stand. Gives great encouragement. The two dangers, I think, in this area are to overemphasize the spirit world and get involved with exorcism and reading dark books. And this was quite popular a few years ago, and I think many of us were warned against this present darkness and the Frank Peretti books and all that. On the other hand, while many people were against those as overemphasizing the power of the devil, I think the more serious danger is that we underestimate yeah. it. Uh, another good C.S. Lewis book to read is Out of the Silent Planet mm-hmm. and Perilandra because you will understand when you read those books that the spirit world is very much present, even though it's not always visible. And he has a really interesting way of bringing that out, <clears throat> which I won't go into mm-hmm. here. But remember that person who insults you or who hurts you has been primed to do so by a system that the mm-hmm. devil controls. Mm-hmm. The educators that so get you know, your, ner- your, um, your dander up because of all the wicked things they try to promulgate, they're just little pawns in the devil's hands. The politicians who are pushing for wicked agendas are wicked people undoubtedly, but there's something much bigger behind them. In the book of Daniel, we understand that even Gabriel was held up by a powerful angel until Michael came and rescued him. So there's so much going on that we don't understand. Every gospel meeting is a cosmic battle. Mm -hmm. There are many in the room who are not visible. There are forces that are working against us, and we need to understand that we need the armor of God for our unseen foes more than we need them for our seen foes. So verse 12, when it talks about this dark world, that's the world system that's controlled by Satan. It's a system that is preparing the way for the Antichrist and the ultimate rebellion against God. That world is all around you. If you don't see it, as Dave has said, may the Lord open our eyes to it. It's not that we want to get into it and arm wrestle with demons and all that kind of silliness. But I I agree with him. There's a great danger of underestimating it. Just because we assume that demon possession and all that sort of thing 
you know, resides in Africa and other, other places. Let me tell you something. Um, at, at current rate and speed here in the United States, between drugs and perversion, um, I would say, at least for my place in the Lord's work, uh, I see people who are demon-possessed. And I think all of us are going to be confronted with this more and more. That's why we need to be strong. And that's why, having done all, we need to stand. Because if you think things are getting better, that's a fool's, fool's paradise. Uh, things are getting worse. And the, the spirits, uh, these uh, powers in heavenly places, they're not necessarily overtly wicked um, presentations. No. Remember, Paul said they're, they're angels of light, yeah. transformed into angels of light, rather. So what we're up against has so many different um, avenues of approach. And, and, and I agree with you, Dan. There are those that you wonder, people you've met in our good old Western society, and there's a whole lot more going on there than just a fallen, sinful person. Oh, yeah. um, it, it's dreadful. Remember Job. Job had no idea what was going on. Sons of God, fallen angels, were meeting in the presence of God and challenging the capabilities and the place of that man in this world. And, you know, I, I have trouble picturing that scene, but heavenly places. There are things going on out there that are so far removed from us, and the only way we can really deal with it is to be wise in the Scriptures. Remember Paul said to the Corinthians, we're not ignorant of his devices. Why? Because we know what the Word of God says about him. So, dear saints, um, we can't be ignorant of the Scriptures. We need to handle it. How did the Lord Jesus handle it? The Word of God. Temptation presented, Scripture refuted it. Dan said earlier, actually, there's an analogy in the present day uh, with the idolatry of the self. So I think the background to this chapter, to this section, is uh, Acts chapter 19. Mm -hmm. And we see that in Ephesus, in the very place that he's writing to, if uh, the chapter 1 is correct, the first verse is correct, these people have experienced the power of the darkness. Mm -hmm. Their idols had been taken away. Uh, the magicians had brought their books and they were burning them. And it says that Paul had done great miracles and the word of the Lord was prospering at that time in the very city of Ephesus to the point where they throw them into the amphitheater and they begin chanting great as Diana of the Ephesians over and over and over again, I think, for the space of two whole hours. So they saw the power of darkness. They saw precisely what Satan was doing. But it wasn't just, there were exorcists there, the son of Shiva, but it wasn't as overt as we think of it in the movies. Right. It was idolatry. Exactly. They were given over to idols. That is happening today. Absolutely. But the idols today are us. People. Mm. People worship themselves today. And I think that's how Satan is, is controlling modern man in 2019. Mm. It's not some physical idol he's going to put at the door of his house. But they're, they're obsessed with themselves. And you take that away from them. They will throw us into their amphitheaters and they will chant at us as well. So he's working today just like he was in Ephesus. Definitely. I appreciate well, I that too. context, Johnny. That's good. You can look at what is being attacked today, and you can just go down Genesis 1 and see all the institutes that God has created mm -hmm. are under attack. Well, that's, again, that's a power bigger than just man. So you, you think of male and female made he them, uh, the distinction in the, the genders, human dignity. And so we have abortion, we have euthanasia, uh, we have a marriage under attack. All these things are, are right in Genesis 1 and 2, 
distinctive roles of men and women. All these things are being undermined. It's, it's not just the way that society's going because it just happens to go that way. It's, it's the powers of darkness that are pushing it. Mm -hmm. And following the course of this world, which is the prince and power of the air, is controlling that. So lest we all go home spooked and hide under our bed, uh, let's get into the solution here. Right, we only got 15 minutes, and there's some tremendous uh, defensive provisions here for us so that uh, we don't have to succumb. Before we do that, so we don't go hiding under our bed, look at what this says. What do we learn by withstanding an evil day? These forces are, are not omnipresent like God is. Okay, Keep that in mind. So these forces can only do... Uh, they have limited movements and limited access, but there could be that evil day. What what do we have thoughts about that evil day? Well, I I just think it's any time that the devil personally attacks you. I mean, we're under general attack. I think that's the point we were making from chapter 5. It's an evil yeah. day. But in chapter 6, there are times... Uh, you know what it says about the temptation of the Lord? You know, Satan came and then he left him. And I think that we experience that in our life. There are days when the Christian life is a pleasant sort of thing. There are days when the devil specially attacks you. I would say that it's usually when you least expect it. It's usually when you don't have a Bible in your hand. And it's usually not at a meeting like this where you're surrounded by Christian friends who will support you in your faith. It's often when we're alone. It's often when, you know, maybe there's unconfessed sin. But I believe there are specific times when the devil attacks us and tries to hurt our testimony. We've seen this in the Bible. Satan was allowed to, allowed to attack Job for a certain time. Yeah, right. And then he was given back all and more than he had. Peter talks in 1 Peter 4 about the fiery trial, a time where the Christians will be tested, mm -hmm. and then it will be over. And it, it, that part is over. In Revelation 2, the Lord Jesus talked about the tribulation for 10 days in Smyrna. So these are, are limited times. It cannot plague forever. God will not allow that. So... That's why we're right there. But let's, like Jeff said, let's move on to the whole armor of God. And the first of the art, uh, articles or, uh, there would be this belt of truth and having our girds, lo uh, our loins girt with uh, with truth. So what what do we come out of with this belt of truth? Let's thought about this belt of truth. I have one more question, <laughs> not to drag us back, but about the nature of the warfare. We talked about here that it's defensive. Right, and so you put on an armor because you can be attacked, and so it's all defensive. What about how do we mesh this with with Second uh, Corinthians ten, where we read that for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So in 2 Corinthians 10, it almost seems like it's more of an offensive warfare, where here it's a defensive warfare. Any thoughts on what the difference is uh, in those two passages? Is there an internal and an external aspect to it? It seems like the one you just read mainly was an internal victory versus uh, facing things that are outside. Yeah, I, I would I would think that for second. Corinthians 10 would be the context of the local assembly that there's false teaching coming in, wrong ideas that are coming in. And it's there where we use the word of God to go on the offensive to show the weaknesses of those 
and the error of those ideas and use the word of God to, to kind of destroy those ideas. Whereas here, it's, it's the, uh, it seems to be more of a personal attack from, from the enemy. But the principle there in Second Corinthians, Joel, is really good. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. This day in which we are attacked by Satan, um, feel good, you know, live the overcoming life in 10 minutes books are not going to help you. Psychology is not going to help you. It's only the spiritual resources. So the, the loins um, girded with truth. The devil is the father of lies. It is the daily application of the word of God to my life that will allow me to stand. It is the source of my spiritual strength and really putting God's truth from the word of God into practice in my life is girding myself with, with this belt of truth. So the, the use of this belt would have to be the first thing the soldier did. And it's very important to think about that because they had longer garments that could trip them up. So when Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, he's using the same metaphor, which is get up the loose clothing and tuck it into the belt. And that was a sign that I'm ready to run or ready to fight or ready to stand in this case. And I won't be tripped up by my own garments. I am from, I left the casual uh, picnic party mode and I'm now in the full engaged combat mode. And the thing about Christianity is you're never safe unless you're in the combat mode. Amen. And you need to be prepared. So this first metaphor is about preparation or being always on guard, always ready. And truth is your only friend. Without truth, without light, you have no resource. So this is God's truth that you have learned and have applied in your life. So knowing the truth of the Bible, the truth about the person of the Lord Jesus. And I like this thought that the belt holds the person. It holds their clothes up so they don't fall. You don't see a soldier running through, hanging onto his belt, you know, keeping it tight, right? That's not how it works. The, the truth that we apprehend for ourselves will hold us and prepare us uh, to stand and to be prepared, as, as Dave said, to ward off the evil one. What about the breastplate of righteousness? What do we see there? What is the breastplate of righteousness? Can we have some help there? Well, the breastplate is the part of the armor that covers the heart. I think that's very interesting. Now, that doesn't answer the question about righteousness, but it does cover this, that if affection for Christ is lost, if we lose our first love, we are in great danger of satanic attack. Um, if I love him more than anything else, there's not much chance that anything else is going to have sway over me. But when I leave that, when the heart is exposed, and I'm moving from the physical heart to the metaphorical heart, you understand that. But I do think that maybe the Holy Spirit likes that kind of thing, and so I'll, I'll mention that. The fact that it's you're putting it on, obviously, is something beyond or more than the attributed righteousness that we have through faith in Christ. Um, so again, I think what we're getting here is a blend of God's provision, but the Christian's own character as well is being blended with this. Um, we have an expression that they have unassailable character. Like you can't find something to mm -hmm. pull a man down with. So there's something of that here, even maybe in, in the truth aspect, the integrity, the honesty of the individual, devil can't find a loophole. The uprightness of the individual, devil can't find a loophole, a place to fire that dart into. So I'm not saying we just stand by our own good works, yeah. but it is God's enabling, and that life response in the Christian helps them stand. 
You know, if you're a weak Christian, just because you've got the righteousness of Christ and you haven't been, you know, living for him, you're in a terribly vulnerable place. It, it is the called the armor of God, though. Yeah. Um, I think it's more the idea of our appreciation of our the righteous standing that we have. Because when Satan attacks us, often it's not necessarily a moral issue. It might be just our... Um, you know, he attacks our weakness, that we, we're we not good enough. Right. We're not living at the level we could. And he tries to discourage us. And so I was appreciating, at least, if I understand the righteous standing that I've been given in Christ, that I'm able to stand up to that. Appropriation of it? Yeah. Appreciation of yeah. it? It has to be, if it, if it is impenetrable and cannot be beaten, it, it, it must come from God. It must be the righteousness... On the other hand, if there is not obedience to the word of God and there is not, therefore, practical righteousness, I'm not sure how well your armor is going to fit. Okay, I think there's, a, like we said, a blend possibly to that. Um, so, go ahead. I was just going to say this objective versus subjective, positional versus practical mm -hmm. is the oldest debate going in this right. chapter. Mm -hmm. And I think the best way to handle it is embrace both. All right. Mm -hmm. In chapter four, we found out that we put off the old man and his deeds with salvation and we put on the new man. That was a once for all putting off and putting on. Mm -hmm. But the scripture also talks about putting on the armor of righteousness in 2 Corinthians, putting on the armor of light in 1 Thessalonians, putting on the armor of God here. So these are obligations that we are to undertake. Now, what is it? Is it the righteousness I have by justification or is it my right living? Mm -hmm. Is it the peace of God I have from salvation or is it having, or that's peace with God, I guess, or is it the peace of God that helps me day by day? Well, in some cases, we, we know the answer. We know that the truth has to be God's truth. And yet, the last one is the spoken word, which means I must have appropriated that word for myself and have it on the ready for my personal use. I think, though, in the middle, we have these concepts of peace and faith and righteousness. I think it's useful to see them, first of all, as God's own gifts to us, God, what God has worked in us, what God has given to us. And then are living in the, shall I use this old cliche, in the good of it? Mm -hmm. It's the first part of the epistle and the second part of the epistle blend together. It's the practical as well as the positional. I don't think one has to choose between them. And I think if you have an appreciation for the positional, it will come out in practical mm -hmm. Amen. life. You know what I'm taking it from God spoke of this armor as his own armor. Mm -hmm. He put on the breastplate of righteousness. He himself put on the helmet of salvation. God doesn't need to be saved. So these are objective truths about God that are now, right. now Paul's using. He's not quoting it, yeah. but he's using it as a metaphor and expanding on it. That's good. And that works when you move to the next one, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Mm -hmm. I was reminded of the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about the fact that the gospel is the foundation of our own souls. The gospel wherein ye stand. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not sure that this means that you need to be ready to preach the gospel in Africa. I, I don't, I'm not sure this is about evangelism necessarily. Uh, I think it is the security of resting on gospel truth. People are telling us all the time, oh, we don't need the gospel. Let me tell you who needs the gospel first. Christians need the gospel first. It's where, it's where we stand. Mm -hmm. I mean, and saved people need the gospel too. But uh, this idea that we abandon the gospel because uh, the unbelievers won't listen to it. Let me tell you something. I need the gospel. 
It's the foundation of my life. I think if you're saved, you you appreciate the gospel of peace. It, it gives you good standing. Um, these these sandals weren't like you know, like sandals that the ladies wear with nice laces. These sandals probably had spikes in the bottom. They were there to stand and to hold. So once a person's saved, they can hold ground because they understand themselves the power of the gospel in their life. So I think that that that's helpful. And once you can stand, and it certainly helps to share what you appreciate for others, and certainly you could be prepared to do that. To move on, how do we look at this? This shield of faith, by the way, is not a little circular shield. It was a shield probably four and a half feet tall, two and a half feet wide, and it covered the entire body. And most of the time, the Roman army went out possibly a mile wide with these shields. They were just an incredible sight to behold. It was meant mostly to knock down these fiery darts that were coming over. In our chapter, we have the evil one casting the fiery darts that were incendiary, little pieces of, uh, of cloth that when they wouldn't just burn, but they would hit, they would explode and set things on fire. Um, so the purpose, uh, we can see what other folks think about, but to move on, is the shield is to quench. Not only can they stop those fiery darts from coming back into the rest of the army, but they can put the fire out. So simply by believing... I like Hebrews 11 on this, believing that God is. He, he is real, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. There's nothing more here than holding up your faith is to believe that God is. I believe God. And will you stand there? And if you do, he will be a rewarder of those who stand for him. I think what Joe said earlier is really helpful in this because one of the ways that the devil hurts us is with doubts. I've heard people say, I've never had a doubt in the world I've come to the conclusion they didn't know what the word meant um, because I think doubts are actually an ordinary part of a Christian life in many ways. It's not that we disbelieve God, but we have doubts about ourselves, and that's what Joe was pointing out. The devil says, you're not all that. You're not good enough. You, you can't live for God. Did you believe the right way? Anybody here know what I'm talking Look, a lot of people looking back at me know exactly this language because we felt it in our own souls. But yet God supplies by faith the confidence to shoot back, to, to resist these sorts of things from Satan. It's not that they won't be fired at you. They will. That's why I don't believe in people who don't believe in doubts. Um, but I will just say this. They can be withstood with the shield of faith. God has spoken. I am justified. I am accepted. I am right with God. So the helmet was meant to protect the foot soldier from these big sweeping swords that would come across and damage the, the head and, and put the person down. So the, the helmet uh, of salvation, what, what does the Christian learn from this? What, what do we get out of this particular piece of armor? I relate back to what uh, Parson you were, Joel was referring to earlier, to bringing into captivity every thought. So it has to do with the thought life of the believer. But again, hard to separate these things, isn't it? As Dan was saying, like the, the fiery darts, it wasn't the impact that did the ultimate damage. It's what it started, and it spread. And so the thought life of the believer, if not kept in check with the confidence of salvation, um, do great damage. I think also in context here, you can look at Satan coming to attack your mind. He's looking to trip you up with different doctrines, not understanding or confusing. What did he do to Eve? He confused. Did God say? So he's going to come in and confuse your mind. What do you put on there? What hope do you have? So this helmet is the hope of salvation. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 helps with this. That Paul looks at the Lord's coming, a truth from the Bible, 
that will deliver him from wrath as a helmet or a hope of salvation. So it's knowing this hope, this assurance that you have, that you have salvation, that salvation is real, that the Lord Jesus is coming, and knowing that truth will help protect your head from the attacks of Satan and in your mind. And what do we have? We're just about out of time, but maybe we can finish up with the, the sword of the Spirit and just a word on prayer here. Um, what is this sword was the short sword. This was not the long sword. This was the short sword used, again, for defense and, and uh, short attack. Um, and what what does the Christian learn about the sword of the Spirit particularly here? It's often pointed out that the word for sword is not the word logos or word of God, but it's the rhema, the spoken word or the utterance of God, certainly based on scripture, but it is not a leather-bound, gold-fringed uh, you know, or red. It's not one of these. This isn't the sword of the spirit. <laughs> That's a book. The truth in there that I have appropriated and have on the ready to use in the evil day, that's the word of God. Okay? Thy truth, thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. That's the word of God. So, so an example would be the Lord and his temptation? Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Very good. And so then the question about prayer. I think you all know that there's always this ongoing debate. Is prayer part of the armor or not? Uh, my short, rather tart answer is I don't care. Um, but I would just say this, that um, I see prayer in this way. It's, it's, the, it's the lubricant, it's the oil that makes all the others work. The belt and the shoes made out of leather are subject to drying out and cracking. The, the sword and the shield and other things are subject to rust and corrosion. But the oil of prayer is what keeps everything active and alive and fresh and vibrant. And I would just say this, Scott, none of these other things are going to work independent of prayer. So I view it sort of as the operating system out of which all of these applications are going to work. Is that helpful? I think prayer is bigger than just an individual piece of the armor. I think it's how all the armor operates. And Paul mentions particular prayer as well as supplications for specific things. And Paul is not too big here to ask. He understands the power of prayer, and he asks his brothers and sisters to pray for him. And I think that is very instructive to all of us uh, to have. Scott, can I just throw in here, you notice how that verse concludes, prayer for all the saints. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the greatest dangers that we have as an individual assembly in a local place or in a larger sphere is not being conscious of the needs of others. And if you even know the need, not being willing to pray for them for some sense of disfavor that you have towards them, that will, that will destroy an assembly. Uh, the Christian stand here supports the gospel and the prayer that he's calling for here preserves the assembly. And so the, the chapter ends with those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Yeah. I think that's really sweet. The first half of the book is about God's unchanging love for us. And now there is the opportunity through godly lives to show incorruptible, unchanging, endless love for him in return. That's what worship is. That's what the Christian life is. It's expressing in my life, both my words and my actions, changeless love for the one who loved me unchangeably. Thank you to everyone.